It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Solitary confinement is, is by far one of the most barbaric and inhumane uh, aspects of our society. I call it America's greatest shame. That's Shaka Sangor, former inmate turned advocate for prison reform. Sangor spent nearly two decades in prison, seven in solitary confinement. He was convicted at age 19 of second-degree murder. Now, he's a mentor and serves as strategy director at Cut50. It's a bipartisan effort to reduce the incarceration rate in the U.S. Later in the show, we get Sangor's take on President Obama's pledge to end solitary confinement for juveniles and low-level offenders. Obama made the historic announcement in a Washington Post op-ed in late January. He said, quote, The United States is a nation of second chances, but the experience of solitary confinement too often undercuts that second chance. The president goes on to say the punishment should fit the crime in the criminal justice system, and those who have served their time should leave prison ready to become productive members of society. Former prisoner Shaka Sangor shared his personal experience at the Aspen Ideas Festival in 2015. He was joined on stage by writer Tanahazi Coates, Harvard professor of criminal justice policy and sociology, Bruce Western, and University of Chicago professor and director of the university's crime lab program, Jens Ludwig. The panelists discussed ways to reduce mass incarceration and reform the criminal justice system in the U.S., which has the world's highest prison population. Tanahazi Coates begins by asking Shaka Sangor about his prison time. But Shaka, you know, you, you spent uh, 19 years in prison. Um, you spent seven years in solitary confinement. Do I have that correct? Yes. Can, can you give us um, a sense of what that is like as a lived reality? Like what's your day like when you, when you wake up? What's your you know, evening like when you go to bed? What was life like for you? Um, when I entered prison, I was 19 years old. And I went to a prison called Michigan Reformatory, uh, which is arguably one of the most violent prisons in the nation. At the time, it was over 1,500 young guys, which ranged from age 14 to 27. Um, so it was a very volatile environment. Um, and, but fortunately, when I first went there, there were some opportunities for rehabilitation or transformation, but those were snatched out within a couple of years of me being in prison. And so day-to-day -day life in, inside was uh, 23 to 22, 22 to 23-hour lockdown, unless you had a job or you were going to school. Does that mean you can't leave your cell? So that means you can't leave your cell with the exception of walking to the child hall, going to the shower, and your hour of recreation. And so basically it was just like a big warehouse of young energy. Uh, young males who come from broken and dysfunctional backgrounds. Uh, and so that was, that was the early stage of my life in, inside prison. And as I journeyed through prison, uh, you know, I journeyed through that during the prison boom. So when I went to prison, it was probably like 20 prisons in Michigan. By the time I left, it was close to 40. Uh, and that was after it was reduced from that being 50. Uh, and so it's just a big warehouse. You know, you have all these men uh, who are, you know, locked up. Most come from backgrounds with third grade education. And they're basically just being housed in cells and given minimum uh, outlets to express themselves in whatever fashion. Fortunately for me, uh, I came in with a GED, so I, did, I was literate. It then gave me the opportunity to actually learn and study. And while I was in solitary confinement, instead of uh, yielding to the madness of that environment, I chose to structure my days as if I was on a college campus. And so every day I would get up, exercise, and then I would study. Uh, two or three subjects, then I would do lunch, then I would study several more subjects, and then I would write 
uh, pretty much until they cut the lights off at night. And solitary confinement is, is by far one of the most barbaric and inhumane uh, aspects of our society. I call it America's greatest shame. Uh, you know, we think about the way that we've criminalized mental illness, and it's played out at the highest level inside solitary confinement, where the majority of the men that I was around suffered from some form of mental illness or another, and if they didn't suffer from it, eventually they succumbed to the madness of the environment. And so fortunately for me, I was able to take that opportunity to uh, immerse myself in literature and learning and uh, kind of get away from the madness of that environment. How common was that? Like you said, like the way you, you approached it, how common was that? It's not common at all because there's nobody in there to facilitate that process. Uh, again, fortunately for me, I was literate and uh, some of my greatest mentors are currently serving life in prisons. What happened was they saw that I was literate and so they started giving me books. And it was the reading of books like, you know, Malcolm X's autobiography that I was able to discover my own self-worth and my own human value. And so that challenged me in a way that nothing else had. Uh, but as far as the system is concerned, they, there was nothing in place for me to like learn and grow uh, and prosper as a human being. And so I had to kind of do it on my own. The part about solitary confinement is that there is no resocialization even into the general <coughs> population, let alone back to society. So you're forced to sit with whatever you, you know, uh, uh, suffer from or you're subjected to in that environment. And so, you know, I, I think of it this way is that fortunately, I, you know, I had the wherewithal to do the things that I did in order to transform my life. Otherwise, I would have came out of prison just another broken human being who would have got sucked back up into that whole cycle of recidivism, which is, you know, prevalent in our society today. Hmm. Bruce, I, I think a lot of times when we talk about uh, mass incarceration, uh, it is presented as though um, it is an agentless phenomenon. In other words, there was no process, there was no one who actually did anything that got us to this point. It was just a, a misunderstanding. I, I was reading uh, through uh, some of the debates uh, around the um, Drug Abuse Act passed in, I think, uh, 86, and, and Pat Schroeder, who used to be a representative from here in Colorado, and, and she was not alone. I don't want anybody to think I'm just attacking Pat Schroeder. But she makes this statement where she says, look, every session or so, there's some sort of crime bill that comes through that's reacting to you know, hysteria, but I don't know if this is the best thing. And then she goes and votes for the bill. And that happens with several people. Can you talk some about the policy? H how did we get here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was a very deliberate uh, uh, political and policy process. And there, were, there most certainly were agents. The big growth in incarceration begins in the early 1970s, but uh, I think the scholarship says that the story really originates in the 1960s in a serious way. And, uh, and uh, what happens in the 1960s? Uh, we have the civil rights movements, a period of tremendous social activism, great gains to citizenship for uh, African Americans with the passage uh, of the Civil Rights Acts. It's a turbulent period. Crime is also increasing during this, uh, this decade as well. And uh, as a consequence of the passage uh, of the, the Civil Rights Acts, there's an opportunity on the conservative side of politics uh, to be uh, uh, tough on crime, and uh, that, that political message gets sent out, uh, oftentimes in a racially coded way, and uh, uh, crime becomes uh, a nationally salient political issue, and, uh, and tough on crime policy uh, becomes the answer. And then progressively, uh, through uh, the 1970s, 1980s, we see uh, the passage uh, of very tough sentencing, 
much longer sentences, uh, big uh, expansion in uh, uh, punitive drug enforcement. And so people are serving time for incarceration now in the 1980s. That's, that was historically new. And uh, uh, drug incarceration rate increases tenfold. The overall incarceration rate increases about five times drug incarceration rate increases uh, by twice as much because the laws on the books uh, are changing. By the time we get to the 1980s, there's basically bipartisan consensus around uh, a, a tough-on-crime, harsh sentencing uh, approach uh, uh, to what are essentially a very complicated tangle of problems in very poor urban communities. Yeah, I just, and I just want to put a period on, on what you said about this being a, a bipartisan consensus by the 1980s, because um, there's great excitement right now about bipartisan solutions, but in many ways, bipartisanship also got us where we are right now. You make the point in your book about uh, mandatory minimums, about how liberals very much had arguments themselves for pursuing this uh, in the same way. Um, the crime bill in 1994. You know, that's also part of the story, too. I think that there's another, uh, there's another complementary strand that is running in the background on top of what Bruce is describing, which is in the mid-1970s, there was a journal for many, many years that uh, many people in the crowd might be familiar, familiar with, The Public Interest, that um, published a very, very impactful essay that reviewed all of the research evidence about the effects of different crime prevention and rehabilitation programs, and very famously came to the conclusion that nothing works. And on top of that, we had Ronald Reagan make a very famous speech in the 1980s, as everyone here will know, declaring that in the 1960s, the government declared war on poverty and poverty won. And so I think sitting in the background also has been this, uh, this deep skepticism among large segments of the American public that we have many alternatives to crime control besides prison. And so we are having these conversations right now within the context, as Bruce noted, of a crime rate nationally. Unfortunately, there are lots of disadvantaged communities in the United States where I live in Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago. The homicide rate has dropped by something like 95% over the last 20 years. There are many, many neighborhoods in Chicago where the homicide rate is still what you would see in a Central American country. So we should not lose sight of the, the crime problem even today, but if you look at the national public opinion surveys today, crime is nowhere on the radar map of things that the public cares about. If you rewind the clock to look at 1990 or 91 and you look at the Gallup polls, crime was the number one issue that the American public cares about. And so I think for everyone in this room who wants to see criminal justice system changes that actually persist over time, it will be very, very important if the public is in a mindset where prison is the only thing that we can do to control the crime problem, one day we will have something like another crack epidemic. And if the public is in the mindset that the choice is more crime or more prison, we are just going to step back on the prison pedal. Um, and so I think that we also have to get people out of the mindset that that is the only thing that we can do to address this other problem that the public cares a lot about it, at least sporadically. Mm -hmm. And when they care about it, they care about it intensely. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm gonna come back to that in just one yep. second. Shaka, I wonder, uh, from an on-the-ground level, did you feel like uh, going to prison made you or anyone you were around less likely to be a criminal when you were released? Uh, no, not at all. So prison is not a deterrent for crime at all, uh, especially when you grew up in a neighborhood where the expectation is that at some point you will go to prison. And so 
Can I just stop you? But, sure. but why not? I mean, if I say I'm going to punish you harsher if you do X, why would that not be a deterrent? I mean, when you look at it, you're looking at hurt people who are already hurt and damaged and broken. And so further damaging them is the kind of expected outcomes. And, and just a great example of that is when I walked out of prison, I started mentoring immediately when I came home uh, because I was a smart honor roll student who unfortunately fell into, uh, fell through the cracks, as, you know, as, as they say. And one of the most shocking things to me was that I walked into a school that was worse than, in worse condition than the prison I walked out of. And so the setup from very early on and the expectation from very early on in urban communities is that you will be systematically processed through this kind of unfortunate rites of passage. And so it's not a deterrent. For me, uh, the deterrent to, from, for going back was really understanding my own value as a human being. When I think about prison and I think about our system, the thing that, that's most troubling to me is that we feel like or we think that punishment is the solution. Like to further hurt somebody who's already hurt and broken is a solution that all of a sudden they're going to come out on the other side of that and say, hey, you know what, I think I, I can do it right. Mm -hmm. uh, and it just doesn't work like that. And so fortunately, again, I had literature and now I'm able to do uh, uh, some things in, in some pretty uh, uh, great spaces. And I think that can be our norm, that if we really understand that our responsibility is to determine what kind of men and women we want to return to society. Do we want people who are more volatile, uh, more angry, more broken to return, or do we want men and women who come back with a sense of their humanity intact, who wants to be access to the community, uh, who wants to be fathers and, and, and mothers and you know, workers, and we fail miserably in our ability to ensure that there's a platform for that to take place, and that's what I'm trying to change through my personal narrative. Bruce, what, what does... Thank you. Bruce, I think there's an empirical question here. Um, one might, you know, quickly glance at crime rates and, you know, see that, you know, they rise and, you know, I guess fall a little, rise through the 70s, fall a little bit, you know, into like the late 80s, rise again during the 90s, and then we get, you know, into this historic dip. And also observe that we increased uh, incarceration rates all through that time, and thus conclude that it worked. That it worked, that in fact, this historic load that we're at right now is, in fact, the result of you know, us having this you know, uh, uh, historic you know, uh, incarceration rate of 700 or so people per, per 100,000. I mean, we might observe other Western countries don't have the crime problem that, that we have. What, what does the evidence show uh, for us on that? Yeah, I mean, if we just look at the 1990s, incarceration uh, doubles and crime drops dramatically. If we just look at that period, it seems uh, this is really compelling evidence for the effectiveness of increasing prison populations for uh, uh, reducing crime. But if we look at the whole experience uh, of the prison boom, uh, there's no consistent relationship between uh, crime and incarceration over that period. It's really interesting if we look at, uh, uh, at the last 10 years or so because uh, we seem to have plateaued now at a very, very high uh, incarceration rate, and that's partly the product of large reductions in incarceration uh, in a few states, uh, notably in California and uh, uh, New York, but a handful of others as well. Uh, in New York, uh, the incarceration rate has now dropped about 20%, uh, and crime has continued to fall, even though incarceration rates are falling. Uh, incarceration uh, has dropped really significantly in California as a result of federal court order because of prison overcrowding. And, uh, and 40,000 people were released uh, from the California system, and crime didn't go up. And so uh, 
the relationship is com uh, complicated. The National Research Council concluded it's difficult to conclude uh, uh, anything with a great deal of certainty about the relationship uh, between crime and incarceration. And I think we should be asking the question uh, that Jens is raising, what might we do differently, largely because of the, the kinds of things uh, that Shakar is talking about. I mean, who are we as a society uh, if we're choosing to confine uh, such large groups of people? And they all happen to come from the same communities. Right. right. You know, there is something very, there is something very weird about the the mass incarceration trend towards longer and longer prison sentences, that is so fundamentally at odds with the way that all human beings make decisions, right? So, like we've had this gang war in a neighborhood south of Hyde Park called Terror Town, that started when one kid stepped on another kid's sneaker and wouldn't apologize, right? And so the policy solution for many many years was. Well, if a 10-year prison sentence is not going to deter the kid from turning that into a shooting, let's make that a 20-year prison sentence or a 30-year prison sentence. There is no 17-year-old kid on the planet who is thinking 10, 20, 30 years down the road. There is no 47-year-old on the planet who's thinking 10, 20 years down the future. And so I think one of the trends that we've been seeing that seems very encouraging, Mark Kleinman is here in the audience. He's been one of the people who's been pushing the criminal justice system to think much more in terms of milder sanctions that get delivered with higher certainty. Uh, so if the sentences are more mild, uh, the system will be more willing to administer them and just taking better account of the psychology, recognizing that ne next week matters to people and 10 years or 20 years down the road doesn't. But I think there's also sort of an important class of problems here that we see uh, all over and over again on the south and west sides where the, the terror town sneaker stepping on is a perfect example. People engaging in crime not even thinking at all, basically. And I think the other thing that we've started to see in some of our work at the crime lab uh, in partnership with the city of Chicago is that you can move the needle for at least some of these events, even some of these serious events, just by doing things as simple as getting kids to slow down and think about what they're doing in these high-stakes situations. And so we're starting to see a few glimmers of hope that might suggest that this kind of 1970s conventional wisdom that nothing besides prison and longer prison sentences could work can actually uh, make a difference. Okay, now it's the time where we trouble the waters a little bit. And I want you guys to help me out, especially you two with the numbers here, but I believe to get to the 1970 level of incarceration, uh, we basically have to decarcerate by about 80%. Do I have that about right? That sounds about right. Okay. Amongst that group of people, um, there's you know, a great deal of talk uh, about nonviolent offenders um, and people that go to jail for marijuana um, and other sorts of things that, you know, I think most people can agree people should not be in jail for. My understanding is that that actually won't get you to that 80%. That you actually do have to have a conversation about what we call violent crime uh, in that discussion. The person who, you know, robs somebody and has a gun and gets two extra years because they have a gun or 10 extra years or whatever it might be because they have a gun. Beyond that, this population, this 80%, is heavily drawn from a group of people who in general, across the course of American history, uh, has had some of the least political capital available to them, okay? Um, I hear a lot of arguments you know, being made right now from a, from a fiscal perspective, um, but it always leaves you wondering, should this actually become affordable, what does that mean? Like if you make the calculation that actually this is something you know, worth paying for, what does that mean? Uh, even if we get back to 1970s level, and Bruce, me and you, we've talked about this privately, even if you get back to 1970s level, the historical research shows that in terms of a ratio, black to white ratio of who's incarcerated, 
you basically will have the same ratio. In other words, in 1970, we already had a problem. Black people are already incarcerated at a higher level uh, than white people. And so it actually doesn't solve, it may reduce the scale, but it doesn't solve the problem of ratio. It's still an unequal system. So I say all that to say, to ask you guys, are you optimistic about us finding a means to getting back to 1970 level? Should that even be a goal? Um, can we actually decarcerate that much? And Bruce, I'll go to you first, and then I'm going to come back yeah. around. Uh, I want to say sure. Uh, I think we're at the beginning of a big sea change in the national conversation uh, about uh, uh, punishment in the criminal justice system in this country. But we're just starting. And when the, the prison system grew in, in the United States, there was an overwhelming focus on public safety uh, and retribution against uh, criminal offenders. And there was no active discussion about what kinds of values should curb the power of the state in meeting out, uh, meeting out punishment. And I think that's, we're, we're on the brink of that discussion right now, a discussion about justice and about racial justice in American society, and it's been precipitated uh, by uh, events like Ferguson and Baltimore and Staten Island. And it's this kind of conversation about what sort of values we want uh, our criminal justice system to embody uh, as a system of justice. I think that's where we need to go in order to uh, make this, in, you know, this huge cut uh, uh, that you're describing, we're just, uh, I feel we're just starting to have that conversation. Something Shaka said that was uh, just totally impressive to me, that we're, we're damaging uh, people that are already mm -hmm. broken, mm -hmm. right? I think so much of our criminal justice talk divides the world into two categories, uh, offenders and victims. And, but in reality, they're not two different groups of people. Uh, we've been conducting interviews in Boston and everyone we're talking to uh, coming out of state prison has uh, long histories of exposure to trauma and chaos and violence uh, in childhood that are off the charts compared to, uh, uh, compared to uh, uh, national population levels. It, it's not realistic uh, to live in a moral universe in which the world is in black and white. And I think we need to have a serious policy conversation that comes to grips sort of morally and ethically with a, a tremendously complicated world in which every offender has a long history of victimization in their own biography. Shaka, you've you know, gone from uh, someone who was incarcerated to now going out into the world and talking to folks about this. Do you feel optimistic? I'm very, I'm very optimistic. Uh, being able to, to, to work, we just recently had a bipartisan summit in uh, DC uh, with actually Senator Cory Booker and, and, and you know a few people from both sides of the party, Mark Holden from, from Koch Brothers, and just the energy in that space around the reality that we have to work collectively uh, to, to turn this thing around like gave me a, lot, a great deal of hope. But I, I really want to address the part about violent offenders, right, if, mm -hmm. if I may, right? So I was, I was convicted for second degree murder at the age of 19. Uh, and truly your point, prior to that, I was shot multiple times at the age of 17. Um, when I got shot, I was processed through the hospital, sent home right back to the same block. No social intervention, no psychotherapy, none of those type of traumatic uh, experiences. In my family alone, eight males have been shot. Both of my brothers, my brother's currently paralyzed, 
Um, and, and so it's, no, it's, it's a given that all of us have been in prison for gun violence. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that cycle in and of itself is, is a reality. And so when you think about the fear around Biden offenders, it's been proven that they have the lowest recidivism rate of all other offenders. And so the likelihood of us reoffending is, is, is minimum, especially those who have served lengthy sentences for serious crimes. Uh, today, what I do today is I teach at the University of Michigan. I am the director of strategy and innovation for an organization called Cut 50, which is a bipartisan organization to cut the prison population in half. I have a fellowship at Kellogg, a fellowship at MIT Media Lab, and I am the national outreach representative for an organization called uh, be Me Communities. And so I, I share all that because I think it's important that, first of all, I'm not an anomaly. I know many men and women who have come home and who have successfully made a transition back to being uh, contributing members of society who have violent crimes in their background. But they were fortunate enough to, for whatever process they went through to transform their lives, to turn it around and add real value to our community. And then other reality is 90% of the men and women who are convicted of violent crimes will return to our community and we still have to factor in mm -hmm. the choice of who do you want to return to your community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so those are things that we don't, that the data doesn't necessarily uh, uh, speak to is that reality. And I think one of the things that goes with that, I mean, you, I, I was watching your TED talk and you were talking about how you got shot and you, they sent you back to the same neighborhood basically. Right. And so when we think about decarceration, it's not just a matter of necessarily letting folks out of prison, but what sort of programming are we going to have around them? You mentioned the issue of mental health. How are we going to deal with folks' mental health issues as they return substance abuse, what have you? Employment, which is just you know, an absolutely huge one. Uh, Jens, I wonder, are you optimistic? I'll pose the same question. You know, let me be a little, I, I think that, uh, for, for starters, I think there is an enormous amount of inertia in the policy process that we should appreciate. This will be a very, very hard fight. I think the other thing that we should keep in mind is that, just to reiterate what I said before, I think that we should not just be thinking about the, trying to design criminal justice system reforms for today, but to try and design reforms that will last even if the crime rate doubles again in the future, which it very well may. Part of that, I think, is trying to convince the American public that we know how to control crime through something other than prison. But the other part of it also is thinking, you know, Bruce had mentioned the retribution urge. That is an urge that is out among the American public. And I think that we need to think more about things that will make people feel like there is some kind of moral sanction to criminal behavior, but that falls short of incarceration. Because absent something like that in our policy toolkit, when crime rates start to go up again in the future, the entire structure of criminal justice system reform then I think is, is vulnerable to being swamped by, by that sort of public concern. But we do have uh, some folks in the audience, or one particular person in the audience, who I just would like to uh, close this out and give us the, the last word. Uh, Moderator Ta-Nehisi Coates encourages audience member Jennifer Eberhardt to ask the panel a question. She's a social psychologist at Stanford and co-directs SPARC, a university initiative to use psychological research to address pressing social problems. For you guys. So oftentimes um, uh, researchers and activists and journalists will um, point out um, racial disparities and in incarceration to kind of motivate us to move as a, as a call to action. And, um, you know, I've uh, done some research now with some, some other colleagues showing you know, that when right. you point out the racial disparities, um, and especially in incarceration, you know, sometimes that leads people to be more supportive of punitive policies, not less supportive. Yeah. And so the question for you is, um, 
you know, should we talk about race? How much should we talk about race? And, and if we're talking about race, how can we um, do that um, in a way that begins to, um, um, you know, deal with uh, some of the disparities that you've, you're talking, the racial disparities that you're talking about here? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's an excellent question because I think, again, one of the things that gets missed in this discussion is these policies were not passed in a vacuum. Uh, racism, whether we like it or not, is a force in American politics and has been for a long time. Yeah, I personally talk about race a lot as it comes to incarceration, especially when it comes to the employment rate, uh, because in prison, black men are 100% employed. And I don't know what the employment rate is out here, but I can guarantee you can find a job in prison, right? Um, <laughs> and I mean, in, in, in the series, right, and I usually get that response, but it's, it, it, and the humor comes out of the fact that it's completely absurd to think that in order to be employed, you have to be incarcerated uh, in this nation when you're capable of, of working and, and, and you are employable, right? And so I don't, I don't think that we can talk about the reduction in incarceration without talking about uh, race. And also one of, the, one of the things that data doesn't really talk about is when you, when you talk about the numbers of how many black men are incarcerated, you really have to talk about what level they're incarcerated at inside the prison, right? So the higher up you go, like which means like close custody and maximum security prisons, the blacker it gets. When you get mm -hmm. down to the minimum, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the camps and, and the places where there's, you know, the likelihood of you going home, the lighter it gets. And so we don't talk about those disparities when we're talking about the numbers of how many men are actually in, incarcerated. And so I think it's really important part of this overall agenda to understand how we got here in the first place. We were just uh, at the point of uh, releasing uh, our uh, National Research Council report on incarceration when we were reading about Jennifer's research that evidence of racial disparity in incarceration was, in fact, perversely to us, confirming people's stereotypes about black criminality. And uh, um, it really got our attention and um, we we thought a lot about how we should talk about racial disparities and incarceration. And, and, and for us, it was unavoidable, inevitable, uh, that we should, because it was, uh, it, it, it was the most visible signal of injustice in the system, and we, we couldn't shy away from that. Now, our hope was that if we could put enough context around the statistic uh, so people could understand why the disparity uh, has emerged, uh, that they could respond to it in a different way. And, and partly this means empirical context, uh, uh, providing history and so on, uh, but partly it means uh, providing a values context in which to evaluate this statistic. And we wanted to confront people with the question, Given the, uh, given the empirical context, is this fair? And th that's, uh, that's the question that we um, uh, really wanted to pose to uh, uh, readers of the National uh, Research Council report. Because I think in, in, in our reading at the end of the day, uh, it was hard to come up with any fairness argument for racial disparities and in incarceration. Thank you guys so much. That was ta Coates, Shaka Sangor, Bruce Western and Jens Ludwig, speaking at the 2015 Aspen Ideas Festival. We caught up with Shaka Sangor in January after President Obama announced plans to ban solitary confinement for juveniles and low-level offenders at federal prisons. Sangor is an advocate for prison reform after serving much of his life behind bars. I began by asking for his reaction to Obama's announcement. 
Well, I'm, I'm super excited. Uh, I think it's, it was a very courageous move. I think it's a move that was long overdue. Uh, when I think about solitary confinement, you know, obviously I think about my experience, but more importantly, I think about, you know, juveniles like Khalif Browder and how traumatizing of an experience it was for him to go through and the long-term impact that that had on his life. Uh, and unfortunately, as we know, his life ended with a tragic suicide. And, you know, um, the first time I was in solitary confinement, I was 19 years old. And, and, and you know, it was one of the most brutal and dehumanizing experiences, you know, in my life. And so I can just imagine what it's like for, you know, kids who are much younger going through it. So um, I'm super excited about the decision. I think it's a courageous first step. I'm really hoping that states follow, you know, the directions of, you know, the, the country's leader and trust his wisdom to know that, you know, you can't do, you know, nearly irreversible harm and damage to people and expect for them to come out as healthy human beings. Right. Well, and on that note, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the effects that solitary had on you, both when you were coming in and out of it during prison, and then if you have effects even now in your life today. Uh, yeah. Um, when I was in solitary, so I, ter- I served a total of seven years in solitary confinement, and at one point, four and a half of those years were straight. And it was by far one of the hardest parts of my incarceration. You know, when I went in the first time, you know, I had no idea when I would get out. That's part of the psychological warfare that's played on people's minds is they don't give you a determined amount of time that you'll get out. And it leaves you feeling a sense of hopelessness. Uh, The level of brutality that I saw in there was really alarming and shocking to my system. Uh, And that that ranged from officers using pepper spray to extract, you know, inmates that they deemed as being unruly. Uh, and, and oftentimes it was for like minor stuff, you know, things that could have been handled in a very different way. And when they spray the pepper spray, even though they're spraying it in one cell, it goes to the ventilation system, so it impacts everybody. Uh, and so you have to like try to figure out ways to cover up your, ve- your vents, cover up the bottom of your door. And oftentimes it's just impossible to do. And, and you know, for me, like I, I've had bronchitis and, and asthma growing up. And so whenever that would happen, it was just like, you know, I had to figure out ways to, to deal with not having a, a asthma attack or, you know, just choking and, and things like that. Uh, you know, and I, I witnessed them use food as, as a means of torture where they would deprive people of food and put them on this concoction called food loaf, which is a horrible mixture of, of food. Um, the original idea was that it was supposed to have been whatever that meal was for the day, uh, combined and mushed up and then baked into a little... Uh, thing like bread, but having experience of working in a child hall, uh, usually what it is is a mixture of oatmeal and all the leftovers from that week's food and gelatin, and then it's baked into these hard bricks, and people can be on that from like seven days to up to 14 days, and um, and so just, just having those experiences just, you know, it, it created a sense of uh, paranoia because you never knew you know, if an officer was coming in, you know, having a bad day, whether they would subject you to it. But even even something as simple as forgetting to turn in your milk carton um, is enough to be sanctioned to food loaf. And so, you know, you have to become hypervigilant. Uh, the inability to communicate with my family uh, by phone or just, you know, outside of letters like that in itself was hurtful and harmful. And, you know, I went four and a half years without any physical human contact other than officers putting handcuffs on me. 
And so when you think about a juvenile who is still uh, growing in, in a certain sense of empathy and compassion, uh, they're still developing emotionally. And so when you take a vital part of the human experience out of the equation, which is human touch, uh, it, just, it just leaves you know people really hurt, devastated, and, and disconnected. And so the, the way that I handled solitary, the last stretch I did was uh, from 1999 to 2004. And I was fortunate I read a book that really informed me about what would be the long-term impact of solitary confinement. And that book helped me understand some of the things that I was going through. I meditated when I was in solitary. Uh, I prayed. I read, you know, religiously. Um, I set my days up as if I was in college because I just didn't want to go out as a broken person. And I, and I saw so many guys who, you know, I knew from being in general population. And it's just devastating to see what that environment does in a relatively short amount of time to people's minds. And that that was my biggest fear was that I would lose my mind while I was in there. And that was like the, the scariest part of it because if you have somebody who you've known in general population and you've befriended and you watch them descend into madness because they can't cope with the craziness of the environment, like it's just a very scary thing because you just wonder uh, at what point will enough be enough, you know, and you break down. Right, and you said when you were in Aspen, that some of your greatest mentors are serving life sentences. And I'm wondering if that impacted how you, just talking to them during your prison time, if that impacted how you looked at how you would spend solitary confinement. Yeah, they made a major impact, especially the reading part. Um, You know, I was really fortunate to have mentors who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself at a relatively young age. Uh, Like I say, the first time I went to solitary confinement. I was 19 years old in a maximum security prison, and it was in that prison that I met a lot of the older lifers, who they just saw they saw the potential in me. You know, they you know I was relatively smart. Uh, they saw I had an interest in reading, so they just started giving me books, and you know we would have these book discussions, and then you know those those things became kind of like sparks for the man that I am today. Uh, and I always pay homage to them, them guys because they're such an integral part of my journey. And I'm, I represent their second chance, even though they're never getting out of prison. You know, the wisdom that they share with me is stuff that I use today when I'm working with men and women in my community. Uh, but it also was part of my saving grace when I was in solitary confinement because of the type of books that they gave me were books that prepared me to be strong in spirit and strong in mind and to be able to survive a very tumultuous part of my life. Their mentoring had a big impact on you, and you said that you began mentoring right when you got out of prison. And one of the schools that you visited was in worse shape than the prison where you were held. I'm just wondering, in your perspective, what needs to be changed in this area, particularly for these vulnerable populations? I think the biggest change that needs to be made is for all of society to see these as our children. Uh, We have a very separate mentality in this country, and it's really shameful to think that we, we, we are squandering uh, a great part of the human experience, which is to really be there to help raise children in a healthy environment. And we live in this reality where it's like, you know, I, I mentor in schools and I talk to all types of students. And the most hurtful thing is that I can be at one school in the inner city of Detroit and literally drive, you know, 10 minutes outside of Detroit to a suburban school. It's a very different environment, very different school. 
school system. And so I feel like we've dropped the ball when it comes to our future. And I was out of school today, you know, and, I, and, and it's always heartbreaking to go into school and to see that we're just not loving on these kids who come from these hurt backgrounds the way that they need it. And, I mean, they need it more than anybody else because, you know, they're just coming from these very devastated environments and schools should be a sanctuary. You know, it should be a place where you can see hope and promise, not go in and feel depressed and, and, and you know, and unwanted and unloved. So I just think the biggest step is for us to all wrap our around, arms around our kids. Um, I'm not sure if you're, you're aware of what's happened recently in Detroit where the teachers have basically been processing using sick outs because the conditions of the school are so deplorable that they can no longer stomach the idea of teaching children in these settings. So um, that's the big thing, raising awareness, really talking about these issues, being honest about our failures. Because uh, if we don't be honest about our failures, we can never change anything. And, and you know, the reality is our country, if we was doing a report card on, you know, race and class, those are two areas that we would be failing significantly at and largely because of what's happening in inner city schools. So what are your hopes for things changing politically in this arena? My hopes are that politicians will stop being politicians and start being humans and caring citizens and understand that, you know, you work for the people of this country, you know, and, and, and that you're a servant of the people of this country. And if you come in with that spirit of humility, your efforts will be a lot more uh, beneficial to the majority of people as opposed to isolated groups. Uh, and so I, I think that we're in a space where, you know, again, the president has shown tremendous courage. Um, me personally, I haven't had much faith in the political system just because of the things that I've seen in inner cities. But his gesture gave me a glimmer of hope that, you know, men and women who are working in office and who have the ability to change policy and change laws will help turn this thing around. Can you tell me a little bit more about your advocacy and sort of the day-to-day work that you do and that Cut 50 does? Yeah, so so Cut 50 is, is a, a organization, it's a bipartisan organization uh, designed to facilitate criminal justice reform by reducing the prison population. Uh, we believe in closing the doors of prison and opening up the doors of opportunity. Uh, you know, obviously we live in a country where we have over 2 million men and women who are incarcerated and we have millions of men and women who have felonies. And so we're really about how do you smart and strategically change the system in a way that helps people, that really adds value to the community. The whole idea of warehousing is, is, is you know, is basically uh, a failed policy that has been in place for decades. And so we want to change that. The role that I play is... I am the person in the organization that helps to humanize the story because, you know, typically we talk about data, we talk about statistics, and we forget that behind those statistics are real people, people who have very real lived experiences, people who have families that have been devastated, uh, lives that have been uprooted, turned around. And so my role is to really share my story, but also to help share other people share their stories. So we're working on a new initiative uh, soon called Beyond Prisons, which really just talks about alternatives to prison. It talks about, you know, avoiding prison and, and, and humanizing, you know, people's experience in a real way and helping them to reenter society as healthy human beings uh, and really giving people a second chance because that's that this country is built on second chances. And sometimes I think we forget that when it relates to, you know, certain classes of people. And so 
my role is to ensure that I remind people that, you know, we're all worthy of a second chance. Uh, you know, there's not a there's not an adult citizen in this country who hasn't made a mistake, hasn't made a poor decision, hasn't done something that they regret. And nobody wants to be held hostage to that for the rest of their lives. If our idea is that a person goes to prison to serve their time and repay their debt to society, when they return to society, they should reap all the benefits and rewards of being a returning citizen who has already served their time. And so we have a responsibility to give people a second chance. Because otherwise you leave people hopeless and, you know, hopeless people become hurt people and hurt people hurt people. Finally, Shaka, I'm wondering, what do you advise for sort of regular people? What what can we do if we care about this issue and want to make a, a difference in our country? So there's a couple of things I, I, I think that are really important for people. The, the biggest thing is to arm yourself with information. Uh, for years, our prison system has operated very clandestinely. Uh, last year, President Obama was the first sitting president to actually go inside a prison. And that's, I mean, like, when you really think about that, in this country, that the leaders have not gone inside a system that houses two million of its citizens. Uh, yet we've had cameras all inside Guantanamo Bay and all these other places. And so the biggest thing, I think, is to lift the veil of, of secrecy by actually going inside and seeing for yourself. Because uh, it's nothing like going inside. It's nothing like the, the really lived experience uh, and then putting yourself in proximity. You know, how do you come close to the issue? Coming close to the issue means informing yourself. You know, that's that's one of the things that made me realize I needed to write uh, my, my memoir because people would often ask, well, how? How does this happen? How does this happen to an honor roll scholarship student who was smart and had all this potential? Um, how does years of solitary confinement happen? And I just felt it was really important for me to share that with people in a very organic way that allows them to come in proximity when they're not normally exposed to this environment. So those are two things I think that are really important. And the third thing is volunteering, like volunteer to go inside the jails. You can go inside your local jails and you can volunteer. You can volunteer to run a creative writing class. You can volunteer to mentor. You can go in and, and, and do um, counseling sessions. You can just go in and just say hi and, and you know, help people reclaim their humanity because that's needed. Like, you you know, it's a very animalistic, barbaric environment. And so one of the things that I realized was like the importance of just human contact that isn't tainted by the negativity and toxicity of solitary confinement, of, of you know, incarceration. And so I just think those things are really important. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, Shaka. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. Shaka Sangor served time at one of the most violent prisons in the nation. Now, he's strategy director at Cut 50, a bipartisan effort to reduce the incarceration rate in the U.S. His book, Writing My Wrongs, Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison, will be re-released on March 8th. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.